Hey, it's Lou Mensa here and welcome to the South London Gallery's Convergence Community Film Festival. You are listening to the second episode of the four-part curated conversation series between Shade and Convergence, the platform for critical conversations, screenings and written commissions. And I'm delighted to say that today I'm in conversation with Courtier Newland. Courtier grew up in West London and published his first novel, The Scholar, A West Side Story, aged 23, earning critical praise for his portrayal of a teenager's life in the inner city. Since then, he's written seven more books and eight plays, winning numerous awards for his work. In 2000, he co-edited The Penguin Book of New Black Writing in Britain. And as a screenwriter, he's recently collaborated with filmmaker Steve McQueen on two acclaimed episodes of the BBC drama series Small Acts, Lovers Rock and Red, White and Blue. In 2021, Courtier has two new works of speculative fiction being published, A River Called Time and Cosmo Grammar. Well, hey Courtier and welcome to the South London Gallery Film Festival. Thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thank you. Thank you for, for inviting me and I'm really, really yeah, happy to be doing this, you know. Well, we're here today to discuss the role that film can perhaps play in, you know, challenging racism in our everyday lives. So we're not talking about the protests and we're not talking about all the big political and, and social actions that can challenge racism. But how, you know, when we're at home, just going about our yeah. daily business, how film can play a role in that. But I wanted to start off by understanding, like, the process for you from maybe becoming a writer, just like not your whole journey, but perhaps when did you start the practice of noting down your experiences and your memories and your thoughts and getting them onto the page? And then how did that shift into a decision that that was going to be a career choice for you? I mean, I started, I've, I've been doing it my whole life. I started very young, just, just orally telling stories, you know, from the time I could speak. I taught myself to read, apparently, according to my mum. Well, it's not really apparently. There's a picture of me at two or three years old in my cot reading. So, yeah, I, I could read at a very young age. And then I, I, I started trying to write as soon as possible. I was very lucky to be you know, to, to grasp that quite quickly and early on, in, you know, in my schooling. And, and, you know, I was taught by a very, very, very good teacher, actually. She used to read us Christina Rossetti poems, like, from when I was in, you know, I must have been about, like, you know, five, six years old, you know. She's reading Christina Rossetti poems. So, you know, like, I had a very, very good English teacher very, very early on. And, you know, my mum was really into books. My dad was really into film. So uh, I was really immersed in storytelling and, and language from an early age. I started trying to write my first novel when I was like about 11, no, eight or nine, sorry. Yeah. And I finished it about uh, when I was about 11. Uh, it never actually got finished, but I was write, trying to write for as long as I could. And I, I wrote between the ages of eight and 11, gave it to my English teacher at, at my, my secondary school. I just started in first year and she told me I was going to be a novelist when I got older and I was really okay, upset okay. yeah really upset oh. really really upset I lost it actually I got really angry with her because uh I wanted to be an MC. that is being a storyteller and a novelist but just in a short way yeah but I didn't really I wasn't really what oh, books and novels are you crazy that's just the like the least like fun and cool thing you could ever say to me you know what I mean? yeah. like how dare you and I got really upset and then, but then I continued to write stories, and I think about that point in time when I was heavily, heavily into rhyming. 
I was also writing short stories. That's when I started writing my first black British short stories. And I feel like those were the precursor to the scholar. I was trying to write in the way that we taught. I was trying to write about our lives. I was trying to do what I thought hip hop was doing in the Mm. States. But then I didn't take it seriously. I really, really, really wanted to do music. And that led to me being about 18 or 19. And I I was, I'd pop, I'd, I was into drum and bass. I was into jungle. Uh, yeah, same. I think we're the same age. I think yeah. we're the same age. Probably doing yeah. the same things at the same time. Probably, yeah, yeah. So I was putting <laughs> out, I was putting out white labels with me and a couple of my boys, and 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 we ran out of money. We pulled our money together various ways, and and you know like dole and stuff. And then we we ran out of money, and so I decided I was going to write a book, and I was going to write a book. And I was going to put it out and I was going to get a film deal for it. And then I would stop writing and I would go back to making music and I would never do it again. That was the plan. That was the actual plan that me and my boys sat down and we said, yeah, we're going to do this. So we're going to run it. You do that and then we come back and then we just buy studio equipment. And that book that I decided to write was The Scholar. And so that's that's how I got started. That's an amazing story. And did you like ever consider like the role of storytelling and and the role of storytelling has in representation and challenging people's views of stereotypes or was it simply you were just in your world communicating your life and you didn't consider that yeah I've never much cared about translating my experiences or our experiences for people outside I've never much yeah. really been into that. I don't like the idea of that. I don't like it what, what it does to the work. I find you, mm. you become a translator rather than a, than, than a chronicler. And I didn't mm. want to do that. I very much wanted to be a chronicler. I didn't want to have to translate very much. I mean, with, with mm. you know, compromise, you know, like there are degrees and, and balances. But I felt yeah. like very much I wanted to be immersed in the experience. It's what I didn't like about the art that I was seeing. I was like, that's too commercial, man. That's too watered down. That's too, mm. that's too popcorn, I used to call it back in the day. Yeah. That's too popcorn. It's too sweet. You know yeah. what I mean? So I'd be like, okay, I wanted to write this. Basically, when I wrote The Scholar, I was like, I'm going to write a book for the Mandem. That's it. You know what I mean? Like, I'm going to write a book for everyone who understands what this experience is and has been through it so they can relate and they have to feel it. And if they don't feel it, I've failed. So Mm -hmm. it has to be a road book, like proper. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I understand that. And sometimes our own experiences aren't always recognised by the outside world. And it's having that validation that sometimes is what keeps us going. And, you know, every creative I've spoken to has has, has mentioned that. And I just wrote a quote of an interview you did, um, and you you were saying that you'd felt hesitant before you were asked to write for the Small Axe series. Uh, You were hesitant about your novel, A River Called Time, because you thought maybe no one was going to be interested but then you did meet someone who was interested and he said to you you're at the top of your game and I don't care that no one's recognized it I see you and yeah. and that was Steve McQueen that said that and I just wondered how I just wanted to sort of talk about that validation and just how you met Steve and then how you made the decision sort of together about what your particular role was going to be in small acts well, I mean, just to, to start off with what, what was said to me, that's me translating what he yeah, was yeah. doing. Steve's a much uh, less verbal person than that, you know what I mean? Even in the in the films, you know what I mean? He doesn't like a lot of words, you know? But what he would say to me, he's very direct. And what mm. he did say to me, and I know this verbatim, what he said to me was, you're special. There's nobody else like you, he'd say to me. 
and he would just say that randomly when we were maybe talking about something else and he'd just say it and I'd be like, wow, okay, hold on, because wow. this is Steve McQueen saying that. And up until that point, to be honest with you, I'd be really, <laughs> oh yeah, it's about to sound a bit big-headed and stuff, but I always felt I was, you know what I mean? I always felt like, you know, that I had something that, and that's not to say that I'm the only special person out there. I think there's a tons, tons of special, talented people out there and I love vibing with those people. When I see that, I want to work with those people. I don't think I'm, I'm, I'm alone. In fact, you know, part of the reason why I wrote The Scholar is because I was like, there's lots of people who have, you know, the ability that I have in the ends, you know what I mean? Like, I'm not like the sole person who came out of that that experience mm-hmm. with, with stuff to say, you know? And if you look at the people that came out of my area and even people I went to school with, you know, I always talk about this, you know, I went to school mm-hmm. with Noel Clark, man. I went to mm-hmm. school with Chucky Venn, you know? Like, mm-hmm. you know, I went to school with some, some talented, talented people. So it's not mm-hmm. like... I was the only one, but I, I I think I think Steve saying that to me at a time when I had been like you know pushing against the industry with some luck in the beginning, and then yeah it got quite hard for me. I was in that middle list area of, of being a novelist, you know, where where all the attention falls away from you. I wasn't as young as I was. I wasn't as fresh as I was in terms of like being a newbie. You know, the, the spotlight had kind of faded away from me a bit, mm-hmm. and I was still going. You know, I published like you know, many many books like that. But uh, you know, at least three or four novels, like in that way, and lots of plays, and I'd still write screenplays. But mm-hmm. you know, it wasn't it wasn't yielding any rewards, and especially I felt it wasn't yielding any rewards compared to the, what I felt was my talent. You know, what I mean, like I had something to say that could be very prominent and could be very, you know, like like you know, I could say something very big, and I wasn't being given the opportunities that would allow me to say those things. I felt yeah. so mm-hmm. when I met Steve, that was a time where that was happening for him and to get his validation was was like like really amazing for me and a boost and with a river called time you know at that point in time i think when i met steve a river called time had been like i don't know man like 16 17 years that i've been since i began that book and you know i had got to the stage where I stopped revisiting it as much as I had initially. So usually every year or every two years, I'd, I'd look it over and I'd do a rewrite of what I had. And I'd, But by that stage, I'd started to think to myself, okay, you've got to get used to the fact that this book might not ever get published. Yeah. And that's okay, because it had been like nearly 20 years at that stage. Okay, get used to it, maybe do some other work. Yeah, that, that's two decades. Do you know, I'm going to tell my daughter that story of yours because she's started writing her first novel. She's 11. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And when I said to her, oh, you know, how are you getting on with it? She's like, well, I'm still in the research stage. She's like, I've got my whole lifetime. I can just, you know, do this until I'm an adult. And I'm like, okay. Yeah. But now you just saying that has made me think, okay, I'm going to share that story with her and say that actually happened with you, you know? That's a good attitude to have, you know. It takes as long as it takes. And sometimes yeah. you can't dictate. And if that, it feels like that particular project isn't happening at that time you can always put it down and come back to it and if you talk to a lot of authors actually a lot of authors have had similar time periods for certain books so I was uh, watching an interview with Robert Jones Jr who uh, like African-American author who wrote The Prophet which Mm -hmm. is like an amazing novel he said that took him 13 years you know so okay yeah yeah it can take that long it's important to hear that yeah exactly and back to Small Axe again Mm. and, and Lovers Rock I was interested that it was the only fictional story in the series Mm -hmm. but you know for me and I'm sure for so many because we all saw the response to that film you know it actually felt like I was watching a documentary of you know it was just like watching a fairy tale of our history how specific was your brief in terms of the story that you were asked to tell we like I don't think it was 
was a conscious goal. I think. I think. I mean, mm. we did talk about what what the blues parties meant to the community. We did talk talk about that a lot, and we mm. talked a lot about our own experiences in the room. Uh, Steve was in the room, and it was mainly at that point in time. It was Steve and Alex Wheator and myself mm. that really, really talked about what it was we remembered and, and what we might want in a story like this. Steve had always had the idea. I mean, he talked about it even before we were in the room. I'd heard him talk about, you know, his aunt coming out of her, you know, her, her, her bedroom window or being let out of the house by uh, his <laughs> uncle and stuff and, you know, and, and sneaking back in you know, early Sunday morning and, and like, you know, talking about that aspect of it and wanting to tell a story like that. And yeah. I think between... The you know the three of us sharing our experiences, we kind of devised a storyline, and that was about you know uh, this young woman kind of loosely based on his aunt, you know, going uh, out to a party like that, and mm. and 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 having this experience, and it all taking place in one night, you know. Mm. Uh, once we'd kind of put together the details of that, you know, what that night would encompass and you know we talked a lot about ritual you know the things that happened in a dance and I've been really interested in this kind of thing for a while now obviously Alex mm-hmm. Wheel has documented it in his novels from from way back so he's a you know brilliant reliable source and mm-hmm. and I also said to myself wow I have slightly because I was younger than Alex I started to think to myself as a, as a novelist and as a short story writer, I have slightly different memories of the way the dances were. And I was trying mm-hmm. to put those down. I'd written like at least one or two short stories set around that period, around blues dances, you know, mm-hmm. and, and, and town hall dances as well, or community, mm-hmm. you know, the, the community uh, centre dances that used to happen, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I talked about mm-hmm. that as well. And I'd written about that in prose. So I really, really, really wanted to get that down. And I really thought it was so important. And I think, you know, a lot of what happened in Lover's Rock was unspoken. Like a lot yeah. of what we, we you know, we wanted to do and what came out was just, it's very weird, came out of a real, you know, when I went off to, to, to co-write the script with Steve, came out of a real synergy between us that we we didn't right. talk about a great a lot you know and like I said Steve did reinforce the ritual you know like like so how like talk about break the night down and then yeah. when does this happen when does that happen how does it work and then I you know I, we would work on that together and mm-hmm. and he'd say something I'd say something and it went back and forth I think it's interesting you know because there was a lot of talk about you know the authenticity of it and that whether mm-hmm. this happened or whether that happened which I found quite I found quite interesting you know because like number one thing is is that all of us were there, right? Me, Steve, and Alex, we were there, right? So we were like, yeah, but <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And then, like, and, I mean, we're talking about things that we saw with our own eyes. You know what I mean? like, so, so you can't. Like, furthermore, the people that I then went to talk to about their experiences, because even if I've had an experience, it was the same with the scholar, right? Even though yeah. I'd lived that life, I still interviewed my friends. You know, it wasn't like I sat down with a tape recorder or anything, but I just talked to them about stuff. What do you think should be in it? What What about yeah. this? How did you experience mm-hmm. this? So someone say to me, yeah, you got to put when we like run away from cabs after a rave. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> oh, I put that in, you know what I mean? Yeah. So I was talking to my auntie and I was talking to my mum primarily about their experiences because obviously this was from the perspective of a woman, you know, and I was like, well, three men, we're three men sitting around the table talking about this. So mm-hmm. I talked to women about their experiences. And my mum went back and then talked to her girls about how mm-hmm. it was when they all went to dances because she said, I mm-hmm. want to get some more experiences. And those mm-hmm. are the things that were fed in. So there was mm-hmm. absolutely nothing 
in Lovers Rock that didn't come from someone who'd been there. So the idea that, like, like oh, oh, you know, people say it's inauthentic and none of that stuff happened, it's mm. crazy because it's crazy. there's so many different ways of having blues dances. So if you think about how many blues dances happened every weekend for how many years, up and down the country from London to, you know what I mean, Birmingham, Manchester, Liverpool, there's blues, like Cardiff, you know what I mean? Like, how many blues dances must have happened? How can you have a definitive blues dance experience? You know, I find that yeah. really weird. So I, I'm just saying that just because, you know, like it's really funny because everything came out of people who were there. Everything. You know what I mean? So Dennis Bovell was there in the in the film, man. Like, no, I know. And but this is the classic kind of response to art, and this is what every creative like has to deal with. Mm-hmm. People imprint it with their own experience. So yeah. therefore, if I can't relate to that aspect, it it's it's not it true. Didn't happen. It's not yeah. my truth. Yeah, but, yeah. You know, you'd kind of hope that people were more developed than that, but sometimes that's just the way with art. And you can't create you can't kind of manage what happens once it's released, can you? You can't, you can't. And I I found it like I feel it's really interesting. I was actually quite happy about the, that response you know because it stirred something in people you know what I mean people felt very strongly about it and I would prefer people to feel strongly about something I've done than feel you know like ambivalent towards it but you know it's quite funny as well you know when I was talking to Leroy about mm. red white and blue yeah Leroy would say to me all of that stuff happened but mm. not like that Right. And he took it as a given. He was like, of course it didn't happen exactly like that because you guys weren't there. You never saw it. Even some things that Leroy thought happened a certain way, his sister Hyacinth would say, no, 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 that didn't happen like that. You know what I mean? Because we all have different perspectives of like the way things happen. And I think that's something, yeah, we're not quite used to. We see our experiences so rarely on the screen that we, when we do see, when it is screened, we expect things to be exactly the way that we imagined them in our heads. And that doesn't even happen for writers. But, you know, the, the thing that I came away with from reading the responses was how it did have that impact, like in yeah, everyone's yeah. hearts. Processing mm-hmm. was immense, like mm-hmm. the, the amount of time it took to process afterwards, which means it had tapped in to memories and feelings that perhaps none of us had gone back to or revisited exactly. until we saw your film. And I can't tell you how many creatives, activists, artists that I've interviewed since the Lovers Rock came out and Red, White and Blue, all of the series. Mm-hmm. And we're talking about something completely different, but every single guest has brought up the Small Act series in terms of its importance within the cultural oh, no, Beautiful. Yeah, really every, every yeah, every single one. So it's it's so important. But I'm thinking about, you know, we're kind of lucky that this actually got done, you know, mm-hmm. got created. And part yeah. of that is because of the the career path that Steve has had. And I read somewhere it took eleven years for him to to yeah. create or to on the screens with the BBC and and I'm just thinking, you know, if he didn't have his history and his career and the power that he now holds within the industry because of all the work he's done for such a long period of time, because of all the gatekeepers that we experience, you know, along the road trying to get work done, I just wondered what your particular experience of that has been at any point where people have just not let your story through or not let you through the door or you've processed something that happened and you thought, do you know, there's some bias going on here, but, you know, it's all right, I'm going to keep on keeping on anyway. Have you experienced that in your career? Completely, all the time, you know. It's so funny because it didn't happen to me in the beginning of my career, you know. It didn't happen to me with The Scholar and I feel mm-hmm. like it didn't happen to me with The Scholar because of the, the, the timing of when I'd written that story, which wasn't mm-hmm. accidental. I'd seen Yardi, the book, 
come out mm-hmm. and, and blow up. And, and there was an interest in black British working class life that there had never been before. And so I stepped into that process. I stepped into you know that, what had been created in the wake of that book. And, and, and I managed to get myself a deal. And I always like, tip my hat to Victor Headley for doing that. He made it possible for me mm-hmm. to come out, you know, and I, I, I'll never forget that. And I have utmost respect to him for that. And so and he, he, he always enabled our stories to be heard, you know, and, and mm. some people wanted to hear those stories, some people didn't want to hear those stories, but it, it gave me an opportunity. It was when I started moving into different fields, you know, when I started saying, okay, now I want to do the same for someone else by writing science fiction, you know, yes. that's when I found it difficult because I was being told, you know, in no uncertain terms, you cannot do that as a black British writer, you should stick to doing this and this is what you're supposed to do. And this, mm. uh, this is another thing about going back to what we were just saying, you know, I think a lot of people have faced that over their careers. Let's let's have it right. You know what I mean? A lot of people have like had to deal with being told, no, you can't tell your stories. No, you can't get that out. Oh, there's something else just kind of like that because it's happened to me so many times. And you know, they've been stopped. And so, so yeah, a lot of the anger that is built up and resentment comes from the fact that other people have been told, you know, the lost generation that Steve talks about, you can't mm-hmm. make your work. You know how frustrating for an artist that is? Mm-hmm. You can't make your work. You know what I mean? You can't express yourself. And we're an expressive people as it is in terms of the arts anyway, in terms of everything, you know? We like to talk. We like to show who we are. You know what I mean? It's a part of our makeup. So to be stopped you know that can do some very very damaging things to your psyche and your spirit man so i got a friend in the states called shireen and we talk regularly you know just about art and, and you know we're creatives and we're always always conversing about everything under the sun practically every day on, on text you know what I mean? we text each other every day and we talk about this thing called the golden bat we said you know she talks about it she came up with it it's the golden bat she said and that's the person who does a certain amount of things in order to be able to create the thing that they really want to create. You know what I mean? And they come back to the community. And and I used to say to her, yeah, but Shereen, no one does that, man. She said, no, but we got to do it. No one does that, but we got to do it. Steve is the only person I know that I've seen who's actually done that. And I said that to him after we after this was all said and done. I said, you know, we had a phone conversation. I said to him, that's what I respect about you. Not the most, you know what I mean? But it's one of the big things I respect about you is that you came back. You came back. And Steve, for all of his confidence and everything, he's you know, he can be quite quite humble about certain things. He didn't want to talk about that. He was just like, oh, whatever. You know what I mean? Like, whatever. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, he got embarrassed, you know what I mean? But sorry to embarrass you, Steve, again. But like... <laughs> but like <laughs> I said to him, that's what I really, it means so much to us that you came back, man. People don't do that. They don't win Oscars and then come back and talk about the community. And people have to, I feel like people should respect that. You know what I mean? Give him that respect, you know what I mean? That he did it and gave people work and gave people actors jobs and brought people out of obscurity who are brilliant people. But you know what I mean? Like, who've been stopped in their creativity, he gave them their voices and, and allowed them to be themselves, you know. Mm. And the effect that that has on all of us as the communities—they're not like just just you guys working on on yeah, the, yeah. the series. But I want to wrap up by because you we're talk, just what we've just talked about has mm. kind of led me to think about. Okay, so new creatives listening to this who are kind of at the point where they need to keep the faith, right? They need to mm. they need to know that what they're doing is relevant and. Sometimes it's hard to communicate ideas to people 
outside of perhaps your own community who don't share the same frame of reference as us. So people say, you know, you can't write a sci-fi as a black writer or, you know, so we have to try and infiltrate that. And um, and I'm just thinking about the communication with, with whether it's publishers, agents, producers, whoever these creatives have to take their work to. Like, is there just one thing that you can leave them with that they can keep in mind when they're doing it, when they really need that faith to keep going, Courtier? I just think keep in mind the fact that you're trying to meet the right person. I'm writing, I'm writing a feature film right now. This is about a period of my life where I did door-to-door sales in a pyramid mm-hmm. skin company. And I remember that pyramid mm-hmm. skin company taught me a lot about life. You know, They used to say to us, you're going to go out there and you've got 30 items to sell and you're going to see 100 people and you're going to get 70 no's. But you're looking for the 30 yeses. You know what I mean, you're looking for the very yeses. In this, the odds are even smaller, right? So you're looking for the one person. If you're, you know, if you're lucky, it might be two or three. You might have a bidding war for your stuff, you know. But generally, there'll be one person who gets what you're doing and who believes in you, and that's the person that's going to take you somewhere. So all the time when you're getting the rejections, you just chalk it off as this is one person closer to the yes. You know what I mean? Yes. One person closer to the person yes. I'm going to find. Okay, that's another no. They're out of the way. Leave them people quickly. Forget about them. And I know it hurts and I know it burns. And it's burnt me and hurt me in the past as well. But you have to keep mm. going because you're looking for that yes. Mm. And it's the same with Rivercore Time, you know. I got the yes like 20 years later, you know. But, but you've got to keep going in order for that to happen. If you stop, you will never meet that yes. And I'm practically guaranteeing and I know I should go out on a limb and say this but I'm practically guaranteeing that if you carry on you will meet that person that person is out there the person who understands and they can be from any race my editor Hannah Knowles is, is, is white uh my, my agent is is Indian you know but they were the people that I met that believed in this book you know, and decided, okay, we're going to put you out there. And I met Steve. We were like, what crazy thing is that? That, that Steve was the person who, who believed in my work, you know, out of everyone I, I met to that degree, said, I'm going to put you on, you know what I mean? I think you should do something. I met loads of other people who were in that position but didn't didn't believe in my work either. So so it, 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 it doesn't mean that you're wrong, you know what I mean? It just means that you haven't met the right person. That's a perfect place to end on. Thank you so much, Courtier. No problem. Thank you so much.